gives me great pleasure today to introduce um, Elizabeth, who's come all the way from Geneva, um, especially for, for us. Um, it's a great pleasure because it, I'm able to introduce an NGO personality, one of the charismatic people in the NGO community who has founded an NGO um, with a very specific mission and made a great success of it. Um, Geneva Call started um, several years ago and it really did fill a gap and sent out to fill a gap, which Elizabeth will talk about, in a very courageous and inspired way to try and engage armed groups um, about humanitarian norms. And of course, this is in a context of a profoundly statist approach to international humanitarian norms. Um, and those of you who know the Geneva Conventions will know Common Article 3, um, common to each convention, which in a very general way tries to call all parties to the conflict to abide by um, the Geneva Conventions. And that's really the gap in which Geneva Call picked up its particular mandate and went out to reach out to armed groups to try and, if you like, put flesh on the very small skeleton in that part of international humanitarian law. Um, so it's a great pleasure to have you here, Elizabeth, and thank you for coming. And of course, that process got more difficult after 9-11 in 2001, when a lot of armed groups, what we were calling armed groups, were relabeled as terrorist groups. And very often, um, any kind of interaction with them was, and still is for some of them, heavily prescribed. So Geneva Call's mission and mandate became more complicated still. But for us, it's a great pleasure to have Geneva Call with us, because in ELAC, our focus on ethics, law, and norms brings us to the heart of Geneva Call's work and mission. So thank you very much for coming, Elizabeth, and we look forward to hearing you. Thank you. And uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to, to be here today and to explain our work. I have to say immediately, I am not a lawyer and I am not an English native speaker. So you have to uh, be, uh, and you, you have to understand that uh, sometimes I will make some, uh, some mistakes. So uh, the proposal was to present the work of Geneva Call, some challenge and, and difficulties, and then to have questions. But if you have really a burning question, don't hesitate. Uh, I can reply uh, during the presentation. And I also brought several pictures, so it's, uh, the presentation will be less boring. So let's start with a quote of a former member of the Colombian guerrilla, and he said, every one of us went to war on the premise of fighting for humanity but in the process, we have ended up destroying it. And I think this is something important for, uh, to, to, to understand the, the, the groups, and I will come back to, to, to this quote later. And what Mr. Gallan is essentially referring to is the separation of use at Bellum from use in Bellum. And this distinction may be very clear for most of you, if not all of you, but it is certainly far less so for a young man or woman joining an armed group in order to fight against real or perceived injustice, against persecution on religious or ethnic grounds, against incessant poverty, resource scarcity, or a combination thereof. 
from the standpoint of such fighters, armed groups, does the separation of use at Belum from use in Belo seem quite so natural? If we want to enhance the protection of civilians from the effect, uh, from the effect of uh, armed conflict, we must ask ourselves whether we are doing a good job enough of understanding their incentive to respect humanitarian norms, the challenge they face in trying to do so, and then to find solutions to address them. And this is what Generacol does or is trying to do. And let me explain a little bit our concept. Genevacol is a Swiss-based, neutral, uh, impartial humanitarian organization. So you see a, a real Swiss product, neutral, impartial, humanitarian, dedicating to engaging armed non-state actors for better compliance with humanitarian norms. Genevacol's ultimate objectives is to improve the protection of civilians from the effects of armed conflict through such compliance by armed groups. In practice, Geneva Call not only engage with traditional rebel groups, militia or insurgents, but also with the national liberation movement and non or partially internationally recognized states like Abkhazia, Nagorno-Karabakh, Somaliland. As long as they cannot sign internal treaty, international treaties, we engage them. As some of you may know, the initial focus in Geneva Call was on the ban of anti-personnel mines. When the Ottawa Convention banning anti-personnel mines was signed, Geneva Call started because it was realized that anti-personnel mines would not be eradicated unless armed groups also renounce their use. They are today the main user of anti-personnel mines. They do their own weapons, their own anti-personnel mines. Here you have an example done with piece of metals and fertilizers, or here with explosive and, and batteries. And while focusing initially on the landmine ban, Geneva Call has recently expanded its activities to the prohibition of sexual violence and discrimination against women, and the prohibition of the use of children in armed conflict, as well as their protection. And Geneva Call is also envisaging initiating a new theme the <coughs> question on the question of IDPs. It has, Geneva Call has also increasingly responded to armed groups' demands to help build their knowledge and enforcement capacities in international humanitarian law through training courses. So many organizations have regular contact, contact with armed groups and negotiate humanitarian agreements every day on access, for instance, to be able to deliver humanitarian assistance in the field. These are usually specific short agreements and Geneva Call has a different approach based on norms and on the longer term. The work of Geneva Call can be character, characterized by four main processes. The first one is the establishment of a sustained and constructive dialogue aimed at sensitizing armed groups on international standards and their respect. It could be in the field uh, at, uh, sorry, uh, or uh, at the headquarters of the 
of the armed groups. Here you have even, you know, the seats in tenue de camouflage. How do you call this? You, know? <laughs> you see, even the seats are like in military treillis. Uh, uh, this is a long and passionate process. The decision to engage one group rather than another one is taken on the basis of various criteria. I can come back on these criteria later, but never whether the group is listed or not as a terrorist organization. We like or we don't like these groups, uh, they are part of the problem and they will be part of the solution. The second uh, the, the second uh, process in Geneva call after having established contact is the signature of what we call the deed of commitment in Geneva call. It's a mechanism where the armed groups have the opportunity that they cannot sign international treaties to take the engagement through a formal document to respect different humanitarian norms. Today, Geneva Call has developed three such instruments. The deed of commitment banning anti-personnel mines, the deed of commitment protecting children from the effects of armed conflict, and the deed of commitment prohibiting sexual violence and gender discrimination. And as said, we are thinking of launching perhaps a new one on the question of IDP. The deeds of commitment mirror international standards and are signed by the armed groups. But not only, they are also countersigned by Geneva Call and by the government of the Republic and Canton of Geneva, which serve as custodians of these deeds. The signing ceremony usually takes place in the Alabama room in Geneva, where it's an historic room where was signed the first Geneva Convention. You can see here a signing ceremony with an armed group with the government of, of Geneva. Under the deeds of commitment, armed groups have to respect different obligations, mirroring, as I said before, the corresponding convention or treaty. This specific obligation form the first part of the deed of commitment, of each deed of commitment. And then each of the deeds have similar, uh, has similar articles which mention uh, important points to allow and cooperate in monitoring and verification of their commitment by Geneva Corps. Uh, they have to agree with monitoring and verification mission if necessary. They have another obligation. They have to issue orders and directives to their commanders and fighters for the implementation and enforcement of the commitment, including measures for dissemination as well as disciplinary sanction in case of non-compliance, meaning they have to think about sanction if the combatants don't respect the obligation. The third uh, obligation uh, is to treat this commitment as one step or part of a broader commitment in principle to the ideal of humanitarian norms, meaning they cannot sign the deed of commitment and the day, uh, two days later, to place a bomb in a market, for instance, and uh, to, to start uh, to, to do an in indiscriminate attack. So it's, they have to consider this as part of a broader commitment to the ideal of humanitarian norms. And finally, they have to also to recognize that the deed of commitment will not affect their legal status pursuant to the relevant clause in Common Article 3, which was just mentioned, of the Geneva Convention. 
Meaning they understand that in signing this deed of commitment, it will not give them any recognition or any legitimacy. The third process after building confidence and negotiating and then signing the deed of commitment is a support to, uh, by Geneva Call to the armed non-state actors for the implementation of the deeds of commitment obligation and to do monitoring compliance of the engagement, including, as I said, field verification mission. Because the signing of this engagement is far from the end of the process. On the contrary, Geneva Call tries hard to contribute to the implementation of the obligation and monitors compliance. Supporting implementation primarily takes the form of organizing training workshops to the commanders, to the combatants in the field, but it could be also facilitating assistance for some concrete steps, for instance, helping them to destroy their stockpiles or to take measures to protect their their children. The second aspect is uh, is the monitoring, first in support to implementation, then as a monitoring, and this activity is not only carried out by Geneva Call, but also by local partners and other organizations, and the armed non-state actors helps also to do self-reporting. Armed groups have to know from the beginning that they will be held accountable. And finally, field verification mission can be organized in case of serious allegation of non-compliance. It was, in fact, not, we, we faced only three cases of uh, non-compliance or allegation of non-compliance. So we do field mission, verification mission in the field. We uh, interview the regular armed forces, uh, the armed groups, witnesses. So we really do uh, an, an important uh, verification. And Geneva Call dedicates a lot of efforts on that process because finally all the credibility of Geneva Call lays on this capacity to be sure the engagement taken by the armed groups are respected. If you have only a nice signing ceremony and a piece of paper in somewhere in a room in Geneva, it will not change the behavior of the armed groups and we have really to contribute to the implementation and to verify. And the fourth aspect, we work with female combatants. In many situations, uh, you have uh, uh, an important part of the armed groups. Uh, You have uh, female combatants. And in many situations, one can work specifically with these women on humanitarian norms and encourage them then to advocate in their own groups. We work also with these female combatants about skill negotiation. We train them because it's important to have women involved in peace talks, in peace negotiation, to have women around the table when you have peace negotiation. And they have requested us very often to train them on negotiation. You cannot spend 20 years in the bush and then to be able to negotiate around the table and having you know, people representing government in, in front of you. So what are the achievements today. Geneva Call has engaged with about 70 armed groups in different parts of the, of the world. You have here the different regions and as of today 42 
have signed the deed of commitment banning anti-personnel mines in, in Africa, in Middle East, Europe. Not all these groups are still active. Some of them disappeared, some of them are today a government. So 42 have signed, but it doesn't mean that 42 are still active. And these groups have complied with their pledge, and most of them have destroyed their stockpiles. More than 20,000 AP mines and thousands of you unexploded ordnance have been destroyed. In this case, also, we attend the, 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 this kind of activities. To be sure it is done, we verify the, the number of mines destroyed, so we really monitor also each step of the implementation. Signatories have also cooperated in mine action. Other groups still reluctant, for instance, to sign the deed of commitment, have taken concrete steps to reduce the impact on this weapon, of this weapon on civilian, uh, the civilian population. This is what we call a step-by-step approach. -step we face some groups saying, we will not ban anti-personnel mines. We, 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 we need this kind of weapon. We have only Kalashnikov and anti-personnel mine. The armed forces, they have helicopter, tank, and everything. So we will not ban anti-personnel mines. So in this case, we work on what we call step-by-step -step approach, trying first to reduce the impact on, on civilians. You have an example here, a Colombian guerrilla who say, which said, we will not ban anti-personnel mines. So we have started to work with them how to reduce the impact. So now they put sign in the trees, so at least uh, the population knows where there are dangerous areas. So it's still not good because they are still using mines, but at least uh, the impact on the population can be a little bit uh, addressed. So this is on, on the question of anti-personnel mines. Seven groups have signed the deed of commitment protecting children from the effects of armed conflict, and five groups have signed the deed of commitment prohibiting sexual violence in armed conflict and gender discrimination. This deed of commitment was launched only last year. At the beginning of its activities, Geneva Call was named the UFO of the humanitarian world, you know, kind of strange uh, device flying. After seven, uh, 13 years, it has been recognized that this deed of commitment process is a success and very well respected. It demonstrates that a pragmatic approach based on dialogue and persuasion can be effective in increasing compliance by armed non-state actors with at least some humanitarian norms. And finally, a kind of collateral dam damage, damage. Though Geneva Call's mission is exclusively humanitarian, it has been noted that in some cases, the engagement with armed groups made by Geneva Call has contributed to confidence or peace building. I give you an example. We have worked several years with the uh, Tuareg rebellion in Niger. And the rebellion has decided to lay down uh, the weapon, but no, no peace agreement uh, was, was signed. And the problem with minefield is very important in the north of Niger and, and also creates problems for humanitarian assistance. So we decided to propose the armed forces and the, for the rebels to have a workshop during two days to discuss how the question of 
demining could be addressed by, by, by both parties. So on this picture you can see this is the first time they are all together in the same room. It's difficult to invite people around the table to speak about peace. What is peace? It's very difficult. But when you invite them to speak on something very concrete like demining operation, for instance, it can work. So they spent two days together uh, with Geneva Call. They shared maps where they had lead uh, mines, anti-personnel and anti-tank mines. And finally, we could convince the armed forces to train uh, rebels to a regular to become deminers. So now they work together on demining operations. So it's kind of confidence building activities which can lead to other negotiations. So as said before, General Kohl has also increasingly responded to armed groups' demands to help build their knowledge on and enforcement capacities in international humanitarian law. Many of them have highlighted a number of difficulties in the communication of norms to their ranks. Such difficulties are not confined to dissemination of the deed of commitment alone, but relate to humanitarian law dissemination in general. Armed non-state actors controlling huge territories, you have sometimes really uh, like the former Sudan People Liberation Army, the territory under the, the control of the SPLA uh, is as big as France, so it's uh, really they can control huge territories. Or when they uh, have multiple command centers which may operate out of several countries, report the, the armed groups report that it is difficult to get new policies out to their political and military leaders. And after discussion with Geneva Call and having raised this challenge, some of them proposed concrete solutions that might help them to address them. And Geneva Call has then decided to dedicate also a lot of efforts to reply to these demands. The first demand, uh, they express the need to develop simple, culturally appropriate educational kits that might be easily understood in local languages that would enable all fighters to assimilate and apply the norms they have decided to adhere or other humanitarian norms. So we printed very small booklets or you have sometimes fighters totally uneducated, unable to read, so we, we had to, new, uh, to, to find new ways to disseminate these norms. For that, for, for uh, on uh, IHL norms, Geneva Call has also developed specific material for the training of armed non-state actors. It was uh, a specific program funded by ECHO and has conducted uh, IHL training already for several armed groups in the field. And this is done in complementarity with ICRC or other, other groups. For instance, we did, uh, this is uh, in the south of Philippines, some training on IHL, uh, how to treat person of the combat. Uh, and uh, we go also in the field uh, to train uh, fighters with small booklets of material. And in order to overcome challenge to dissemination, 
um, non-state actors request training session, not only for the military command commanders, but also for their political wing. And we discovered it's very important to have the military wing and the uh, political wing train on these norms. The third aspect, uh, the third thing they, they have requested us is to comment uh, and to give recommendation on the basis of their already existing codes of conduct. Most of these groups, they have code of, uh, codes of conduct, but they don't know if these codes correspond to principle of humanitarian norms. How can they uh, improve their, their own code and how uh, if they don't have, how can they start with, uh, with some rules? This, this, for in, this is, for instance, what we did in the, in the Philippines. Uh, they uh, adopted what they call a general order number three, and they have requested us, we, we helped them to draft this, this general order, and then we, they requested us to train, to do a training of trainers to be sure then the commanders will be able to disseminate to the people in the field. So the challenge, as you can imagine, such work does not exist without facing some challenge and even sometimes serious ones. So the first one I would like to mention is, as with certain states, some armed non-state actors are reluctant to abide by international standards, either they reject IHL in general by ideology or they reject some specific norms. And in this case, as I mentioned before, we try, we, we, we don't give up. We don't say, okay, you are not ready to, to, to improve your behavior. So we try to work on, on a step-by-step -step approach and starting from their own rules. For instance, here uh, it was on the, the protection of children, so they had still children with them. So we said, in case of attack, at least don't use them uh, in the in the hostilities and build a cave or a bunker so they can uh, go there and be protected. So this is the kind of things which is not 100% perfect, but at least the children are trained to go there in case of attack. Another challenge that Geneva Call has been facing is how to deal with armed groups that have weak common structures or have split into several factions. I think Syria is a, a concrete example now of a very complex situation because you ha don't have a leader with a chain of command. You have hundreds of different groups and so-called commanders and the official leader of the Free Syrian Army, in fact, are based outside of Turkey and inside the combatant will say, they, they told us, you know, these are the combatants of the Five Stars Hotel spending their time in, in Doha and in Cairo and in Geneva. So the, the, when you have this kind of uh, groups with several factions, it's much more difficult to engage them. And in this case, we have really to, to, to invent totally new approach in Syria, for instance, to train commanders. We have done this a little bit, but we never know then if this under the, the control or the orders of this commander, you will have three fighters or, or, or 50. So we have decided also to start with TV spots in uh, Syria with basic norms uh, of, on humanitarian law. 
A third, a third challenge is um, the lack of technical capacity for the implementation of the obligation. Like, as I said before, stockpile destruction. You cannot just put a match and, and, and it's done. External support is needed, but it's not always easy to uh, raise the money to bring a specialized organization to do the work. And in such situation, uh, a delay can bring new problems, like it was in Somaliland, for instance. Uh, no, it was in Somalia, for instance. Geneva Call was trying to raise money to help an armed room to destroy 3,000 3, of anti-personnel mines. Since no donor was found and time went on, these AP mines have, have been stolen by Islamist groups. So uh, we have really to, to find a way to raise money when uh, it's urgent, but it's difficult because we have also to be cautious as this kind of support could be considered as military support. So uh, this is not uh, easy. The fourth challenge, um, in a few cases, Geneva Call has faced difficulties in getting access to armed group for security reasons, as you can imagine, but also for political reasons. In some situations, the government has restricted or even prohibited access to the groups. Uh, and at this point, I would like to mention, because it's important, Geneva Call's work is always done in total transparency, meaning we always inform the concerned government that we will start to engage the, the armed group or, or, or the armed groups, it depends if, uh, in some countries you have several. We don't explain when, where, with whom, but we say we will start to engage this, uh, this group active in your territory. Finally, the uh, fifth challenge is the war on terror. When listed as terrorists, some groups often become more radical and extremist, and their internal hardliners are reinforced. This kind of radical behavior will for sure have consequences on, the civil, on civilians, but the consequences can also reach the humanitarian community. Some counter-terrorist measures have initiated a process of criminalization of humanitarian workers. The decision of the Supreme Court in US, the Holder case, is clearly a criminalization of humanitarian workers. And as humanitarian actors, actors are afraid of being sanctioned or prosecuted, civilians are left behind without any support. So this is now becoming a very big challenge. Uh, every uh, each colleague in Geneva Call could be arrested in the U.S. and spend 15 years in jail just because we released child soldiers or destroyed uh, anti-personnel mines. You have just here a, a, a summary of the challenge uh, the, that I just, just mentioned. So what are the... the, the why, what are the motivation of the armed groups? There may be different factors that influence the decision of an armed group to commit to humanitarian norms. And a few years ago, Geneva Call conducted a research into the involvement of armed non-state actors. At this time, it was in the landmine problem, both in its negative aspect, the use of landmines, and positive aspects, contribution to, to mine action. 
and the report argues for a holistic view of armed non-state actors, considering both their capacity as spoilers in the conflict as well as their potential to contribute to the solution of human security problems. The results of this research show that, generally speaking, the factors influencing armed non-state actors' openness to engagement with humanitarian norms can be divided into political willingness on one side and ability to implement. So the political willingness. Uh, a few points. First, the question of participation ownership. Many armed non-state actors do not recognize international treaties signed by states they are fighting. It's quite obvious. They don't want to recognize the treaty signed by the government when they are fighting against this government. And as with states, it will be more difficult for armed non-state actors to deny the legitimacy of a norm they have themselves decided to adhere to. So it's why it's important to give them this possibility. Second point, the reciprocity. Correct, correct behavior by opponents increase the will to take on and respect com commitments. The third one, political conflict situation an improved situation between the armed non-state actor and the opponent increase the will to take on and respect humanitarian norms and at the opposite, the deterioration of the situation or the du duration, like we could read on the first uh, slide, the quote of the rebellion of the uh, Colombian guerrilla, uh, of the war can have the opposite consequence. The reputation, striving to actively improve its internal and external reputation. Humanitarian and development, developmental consideration, expected short and long-term beneficial impact on civilians and the territory are potential incentives to take and respect commitments. Expected peace-building gains greater probability of dialogue, dialogue with the state. You could see, for instance, uh, in Colombia, the FARC has decided to uh, give up with uh, hostage taking, and some months ago, uh, some months later, uh, peace talks have started with the Norwegian government, uh, and with the agreement of the Colombian government, because until now, the, Govian, the Colombian government never agreed on a new peace talks. And finally, the use of violence against civilians when armed non-state actors use means or have aims that contradict humanitarian norms, they can understand that such factors can clearly be a hindrance to negotiation and reconstruction in the future. They understand that finally peace will never be built on atrocities. Then the other factor, the ability, they are Three, the chain of common, as I said before. This is a challenge for Geneva Corps, but it is also a challenge for the armed group. Secondly, the territorial control. Uh, the control of territory increases the armed non-state actors' ability to respect or implement commitment. And finally, the, exist the capacity, internal capacity, expertise, or resource uh, increase the ability of the armed non-state actors to respect and implement commitments. And for the work of Geneva Call, understanding the motivation forces that encourage armed non-state actors to respect humanitarian norms as well as the challenge. So we did this research, but 
as it is important, we started to do what we call our meeting of signatories to the deed of commitment. You know that states have the states parties meeting of X or, or Y convention. So we started to have our own non-state actors parties meeting. And uh, the second, we organized two already. The second one took place in Geneva. On this picture, you have 44 senior political and military representatives from 28 armed groups uh, coming from all over the world. So this was in Geneva. We are lucky because in Geneva we don't have, in Switzerland, we don't have list of terrorists. And the authorities allow or provide visa so this uh, representative of armed groups can come to Geneva. And it was, it was funny because we used to meet them in the middle of the mountains or in the bush in uh, military clothes, dressed, and, and they were very well dressed here. So two-thirds of them were signatories to Geneva Call, and others were invited as observers. And uh, um, this uh, representative from around the world met to exchange views, especially on two points. First, the challenge they faced in implementing the Geneva Call deed of commitment or in trying to respect humanitarian norms and how to address them. Sometimes they can exchange how they have faced this challenge. And the second discussion or important part of the discussion were on uh, existing norms relating to the protection of two groups of particularly vulnerable and specifically protected people, women and children. So these representatives were very well uh, prepared and finally they have worked on, on recommendation and I would like to underline two of uh, these recommendations. They again clearly expressed their willingness to enhance their capacity to respect humanitarian norms by receiving training and technical support by expert organizations. This is clearly something which is needed and always uh, requested. And the second uh, recommendation I would like to mention is, generally speaking, armed non-state actors feel prejudiced by differential, differential treatments towards states and armed non-state actors in the mechanism to enforce humanitarian norms and sometimes even in the norms themselves. And I will just develop a little bit this second comment because it's, it's interesting. On the differential treatment, the equality of belligerents is a fundamental underpinning of traditional humanitarian law between states. However, its transition to the law of non-international armed conflict has not necessarily been smooth. This is because under international law, armed non-state actors do not have the same legal status or capacities as states, even though they are deemed to be bound by humanitarian law. Regardless of whether the substance of the law applies equally, disparities of status arise. In many cases, armed non-state actors feel that international mechanisms or processes are biased as they are developed and controlled by states or interstate organizations. And they consider that this tool, this instrument, the Geneva Calls Deed of Commitment, is important because it will, the deeds of commitment, belong to armed non-state actors and not to the UN. And they consider that 
under the UN system, all non-state actors are usually only named and shamed. Based on Geneva Call experience, uh, I would like to add at, at this point that the, the key to success after more than 30 years in, in this field, the key to success is in the world self-appropriation or ownership. It is essential not to, to not impose, but to generate enough interest so that the armed non-state actors will take their own decision to adhere and respect humanitarian norms. And even if the signing ceremony takes place in Geneva, sometimes there is another ceremony in the field, so really the combatants can take part of this decision, kind of celebration saying, now we have decided to respect these norms, or several norms, and to respect uh, these norms. In the same vein, I want to emphasize the importance of avoiding only the don't, don't do, but also to insist on the do. This is a key aspect for armed non-state actors to understand we are not only on the prohibition page, but also waiting from them for constructive measures. They have to understand they have responsibilities, and in all three Geneva calls deeds of commitment, there is a mix of prohibition as well as positive and constructive obligation. And they have to uh, provide education to the to their children uh, in areas under their control. On the question of differential treatment they have mentioned, uh, in some cases, armed non-state actors implicate also the substantive law itself. For instance, they object to the differ differentiation between states and armed groups in the optional protocol on children and armed conflict, as well as objecting to his unequal standards on age and scope of prohibition. Um, I, will sh I will show you how it can be first complex for armed groups to understand uh, the law and how the norms are not the same for states or for armed groups. So you have here different uh, treaties convention only on children and the age to be part to, to take part in hostilities. So you can see that this is really difficult for them to understand and why for instance it is 16 for states but it is in the optional protocol children can be part of armed forces already at 16 but for other armed groups it's 18. So you can see how it is uh, complex and why they have the feeling sometimes this is not really uh, uh, equal. This is a kind of same same table but a little bit different. They, und they underline that the UN listing process, for instance, on violation of child recruit recruitment and use obligation lacks due process, including the right to be heard. For instance, you have monitoring process in the, uh, the UN on the use of children. The, the um, states are consulted on the reports, but the non-state actors, the armed groups, are never consulted. So again, they want to express their view and to explain the situation. And as a final point on differential treatment, armed non-state actors express concern about the lack of input they have into the substance of the law. They request more consultation, could be done through intermediaries, with armed non-state actors on the ground, so that legal standards take into account the subtle realities of field conditions. 
the international community has to accept that the concrete realities in the field faced by armed non-state actors need to be un understood and addressed. I give you an, an example. It is said that it is not allowed to have children associated with armed groups, but for some or for many children, their parents have decided to be rebels. And this is a basic right of a child to live with his parents. So they live all together, and they are under inter the, the, the international community, they are considered as child soldiers because as associated with armed groups. So there was a, a, an attempt in, in Mindanao to release all these children associated with armed groups. And the final, uh, when they had uh, finalized the research, it would have meant that 108,000 children would have uh, been obliged to leave their parents, which is totally crazy. So I think the international community has to understand the reality in the field. This is not black and white like four states, but uh, in this case, for instance, the right of a child to live with his parents is a basic right, but he's living every day with people with uh, carrying weapons. And so we have to explain to these groups how they have to protect the children in case of attack, how this is not allowed to take them on the front line, uh, and they don't have the right to use them of spies or bringing food to the combatants, but um, they can take positive measures. The, the armed groups affirm that it is uh, finally on the question of uh, terrorism. They affirm that it is counterproductive to label armed non-state actors as terrorist organization, prohibiting access to them, and still expect them at the same time to respect humanitarian and human rights law. Engagement, but uh, engagement doesn't mean impunity. If and when armed non-state actors don't protect or deliberately target civilians, it is without any doubt necessary to report, to use also the naming and shaming process, to condemn, but not only, it is also essential, as I said, to try to engage them about their respective humanitarian norms. So, my conclusion, um, as I just mentioned, the question of access, governments and the international community have to accept that the engagement of armed non-state actors will not reinforce them, but is a precondition to the protection of civilians. In this sense, concerned states have to recognize that the obstruction to access for humanitarian organization is the wrong approach and will have a negative impact on civilians. And uh, I would like to quote the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, who now really insists on this aspect, asking member states not taking uh, um, or adopting national legislation or measures that will uh, prohibit access to armed groups. And I think what says uh, Ban Ki-moon is, is clear. He, say, he says, uh, as you can read, while engagement with non-state armed groups will not always result in improved protection, the absence of systematic engagement will almost certainly mean more, not fewer, civilian casualties in current countries. So things are moving on, and even last week, the Security Council insisted or said for the first time it is important to engage armed groups on humanitarian law.
So in most of, um, oh, and finally, uh, I would like to insist also on the importance to engage everybody. The listing of terrorist organization, as I said, is a political process and must not impact humanitarian action. And the criminalization of the humanitarian actors will, at the end, affect the civilians more than the armed And the, it's important to say and to say again that the war on terror should not affect the humanitarian space. In most of the discussion that Geneva Call has had with armed non-state actors, they have made it clear that they want to take ownership of their humanitarian obligation, and supporting such a request does not mean being an advocate of armed non-state actors, but rather an advocate for those who suffer as a result of violation of international humanitarian norms. And certainly, like states, not all armed non-state actors will be seriously committed to respecting humanitarian law. But for those who are willing to consider humanitarian norms, whatever their incentive may be, we can ask ourselves whether we are doing our best to enable them to comply. And in closing, we must not lose sight of the probability that international mechanisms controlled by states will tend towards supporting their own interests. In a world where conflicts occur primarily between states, this world did not pose a problem. However, we know that this is not the case today. Conflicts are internal conflicts. And we want to be able to justify the separate, if we want to be able to justify the separation of youth at Belum from youth in Belo to the most numerous actors in today's armed conflict, the armed non-state actors, then it is our responsibility to ensure that they do not feel prejudiced either by the separation itself or by the way in which it is enforced. So I thank you for your attention and if you have questions. Thank you very much.